welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. We've got a good set of panelists here. We've got Aaron from co-founder of Novik, who you've seen many times at this point. Anil as well, familiar face co-CEO of First Light Games, and Tammy Levy, Chief Games Officer, great title, of uh, Captain.TV. How are you guys doing Hello. today? Doing great. Feeling it? <laughs> really we are, we it. are ready. We are ready to go. <laughs> we are pumped. Got some, got some coffee. At least I got some coffee, some water. I'm ready to dive in. Morning. Well, cool. We've got some good topics today. We, we're we're going to start off a little a little easy with uh, some updates around the Mario movie, some cool stuff around uh, Dream Games, their new game, uh, some stuff about Philip Law leaving Sky Mavis, which should be interesting, and then some good deep dives on Scopely uh, getting acquired by Savvy Games, uh, Sony with some interesting stuff trying to do their maybe cloud stuff, and then some cool stuff around AI, the evergreen topic these days. So why don't you kick things off, Aaron? Yeah, lots of stuff. Um, so... Yeah, we'll start with the the Mario movie, uh, which is officially out. I know, Anil, you you and I are the ones here who have seen it. Maybe before I dive in, Anil, you want to give your your quick movie review for the audience? Let's go. Uh, it's amazing. <laughs> I think it's super great. If you've uh, like Mario in any way, shape, or form, you've got to see it. It will surprise and delight you. I think it's great. Then, if you've ever seen the old one that came out in the '90s, which was horrific with Bob Hoskins in it, this is not that movie. Um, yeah, just go see it. It's great. Yeah, I saw on. I mean, I also thought it was a fun movie. I saw that on on Rotten Tomatoes. It has a fifty seven percent critic score, but a ninety six percent audience score, and that sounds about right. Like it's a fun, yeah. not super deep movie. But you know, if you're a fan of the franchise, you'll see lots of like interesting throwbacks to the games, and you know, just have a, have a good time with all all the references um, and such. But you know, more important, importantly than our our delight. The the movie is also breaking records. The its opening weekend amassed three hundred seventy seven million dollars in box office receipts, which broke the record for largest video game adaption opening, surpassing World of Warcraft from a few years ago. And it also broke the record for the largest animated movie opening, surpassing Frozen Two. Now I think uh, inflation might skew that second one a little bit, especially since inflation has been pretty high over the past year or two. Uh, but even so, it's a pretty massive success and great accomplishment. And the movie is almost definitely going to tip over a billion dollars at the box office when when all is said and done. So, um, quick context: the movie was made in coordination with Illumination, which also made Despicable Me, The Secret Life of Pets, some other um, animated franchises. And I don't think that they have shared their joint terms publicly on how Nintendo and um, Illumination are funding and profiting off of this movie. But uh, So I'm not positive what Nintendo will really walk away uh, from this, but however you slice it, 
it's going to bring in significant, super high margin revenue for Nintendo this year and give them some extra cash to to hoard away and probably give out as a dividend because that's about all Nintendo does with their cash. But um, but they'll have more of it. Um, and um, you know, the interesting question then becomes, what's next? Like, will we see? more movies in the Mario universe? Will we see Nintendo push for other franchises like Zelda or Kirby or or who knows um, to, to kind of bring to life on the screen in some ways? We, we all know the power of Nintendo's IP. I think this, this launch with the Mario movie only kind of solidifies that further. Um, but, you know, whatever we see... It's going to take a few years, <laughs> and so you can't really view. And it's this it's movie. also it's also coming off the the heels of their um, opening of the of the theme park in Los yeah. Angeles, right? So it's like it's a big big year for Nintendo um, diversifying in in how they're leveraging their IP. Yeah, so all of these plans they've been, you know, they've been in the works for several years, and so they all they all are now finally. You know, coming to fruition. It seems like in really successful ways on on both sides. But you know, of course, from the what's next lens, if they want to expand it from here, do more stuff, it's just going to take even even more years. And maybe it's worth the wait if they can figure out some new formula or strategy to um, you know boost their their franchise revenues in a way that Nintendo is happy with. And normally, historically, they've always been super conservative on the things that we do. So it'll be interesting to see, but. I guess I'll just I'll just pause there on that. It's been a great success, but I'm curious if any of you have thoughts on what this will lead to for Nintendo. Do you, do you think we'll see Super Mario Brothers the movie, the game? No. Or is that just too much? <laughs> too, too much. <laughs> they did it with Street Fighter. There was a Street Fighter the movie, the game. So um yeah. No, I don't think we'll see it either. I'm all on board the Mario Cinematic Universe though. Yeah, they still got new characters to show too. Like Yoshi didn't make it in. Um, you know, they got the spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> well, it's not. It's well, I'm. I'm, I'm very excited. I'm. I'm yeah. very excited that it's doing well, right? Because it 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 opens that opportunity um, for more movies in the in the universe and just leveraging the IPs. Like it, uh, if it if it wasn't breaking records, then we would have a Nintendo that is like probably more hesitant of on, on going further into that direction. But if it's doing well, it's, it's, it means that just like more power to, Hey, let's, let's keep doing this. Yeah. The, well, the last uh, thing I'm waiting I'll for that say, captain N. <laughs> yeah. The, the last thing I'll say about this update is that like, obviously it's early, but there's a chance that the largest movie of the year is super Mario bros. And the largest show of the year is The Last of Us. Um, and that feels like a really important milestone for the games industry and games industry adaptations. Um, and, you know, I think we've, we've said a few times before about like, yeah, like we're entering the, the golden age of video game adaptations. Like, <laughs> I think we can firmly say we're in it now. Um, but... I, I think I'd like to almost like tweak my prediction or play it forward even just a little bit more from like, you know, we're like in and entering the golden age too. <laughs> because of these enormous successes, I think we're just going to see the floodgates open and Hollywood's going to start going crazy trying to get rights to video game IPs. Some are going to be great. 
Some are going to be really bad. Some are going to be in the middle. And um, yeah, it's just going to be a wave for better or or worse over the next few years that probably will you know go through its own hype cycle of sorts. But um, yeah, these early successes are still a great indicator of what's possible uh, to come in the future when we think about all the other great franchises and IPs that we love. Yeah, for, for better or for worse, both uh, the movie, the, the um, Super Mario movie and The Last of Us set a very high bar on what we want as adaptations. Yes. So I am, I am also ready to be disappointed with the floodgates <laughs> of, of things that come after. Well, at least at this point, we've already rid ourselves of Uwe Boll from that last video game sort of a phase that we went through. So I think hopefully we've moved on to, to better directors and, be, and better things. Uh, so I anticipate a mix, obviously, but I'm excited about it. But speaking of uh, some goofy cartoonish royalty, uh, we've got a new game from Dream Games coming out. Uh, yes, that's a, that's a great transition into Dream Games. So uh, they recently uh, soft launched in the, this last week uh, a new game, Royal Kingdom. It's very much in their same IP of uh, their current game, uh, their, their only game and first game, Royal Match. Uh, and this is uh, also coming kind of right behind some other announcements that Dream Games has been making. So they... They raised money last year. Uh, from there, they announced a new office in London, so expansion into Europe. Um, just as a reminder, they're based out of Turkey. They're they're pretty much uh, one of the big players in the Turkey scene right now. Uh, and they also announced some uh, key leadership hires from you know X King and in uh, the likes. So the the game, as I mentioned, is Royal Kingdom. Um, it actually, it's, it's interesting because it, it follows this, uh, what I feel it's like a, an old school playbook of match three games and just mobile games in general, but we see it a lot with match three games where, um, and that space, uh, where it's the same engine, it's the same mechanics. It has very much this, this, it feels like this zinga e formula of like do the same like a huge percentage of the game is the same. There's this sliver of improve and there's like this tiny slice of new. So for um, Royal Kingdom is same match three engine. Uh, it seems like they're trying to improve on the building metagame. So instead of having kind of like a more flat uh, progression and just, you know, very, there, there's no real like metagame in, in, um, royal match where just like you pick one thing and just pay the build this thing and that's it right um so they're going to like a little bit more of like a map uh type um presentation uh for the the metagame it feels a little bit closer to like garden or homescapes uh and then the the new piece is that they are introducing attack mode which seems to be like a, a light take on pvp uh, from what I could tell, it's it's very light. It's not very meaningful. I don't know if they're effectively like testing it and see if if they can do something more out of it. Uh, all that being said, uh, as as I mentioned, like we see this with a lot of match three in like this type of games, like um, tap two or match two, which was like their the peak games ones. Uh, so Playrix has Guardianscapes, Homescapes. 
Uh, they've launched a bunch more after that that have flopped, like wildscapes and farmscapes and who knows what scapes. Um, peak games, which a lot of the dream games folks come from. Uh, so they're like post uh, Zynga acquisition of peak games. Pretty much follow the same playbook. They did to- Toy Blast. Then a couple of years later, they did Toon Blast. It was with that same formula. Uh, downloads, you know, they got a much higher traction on the second game on downloads. Uh, they did see some DAU cannibalization from their second game, taking off their first game, but not as much revenue. Um, and they positioned themselves to have a much stronger um, ARPU uh, for for the second game. My my question and my hesitation is that uh, can can this strategy work in today's world? Like the world has changed very, like the the mobile landscape has changed very much from you know 2018, 2019 to today. So I mean the game looks great. If the the match three core demographic still behaves in the way that they've behaved in the past of you know, they don't necessarily like the, the core core players don't necessarily quit, but they just like, okay, I'm now deep into that game. Oh, it's cool that there's a new game out. Uh, and they're basically like, cycling between the two because their levels are getting much harder on, on the older games. So they have kind of, while they refresh their energy on the game where they're deeper, they go and start a new game. Um, so that's, that's generally like, conventional wisdom around how match three players behave. Uh, but I'm, I'm skeptical that uh, it can, it can work uh, in today's world. It would be great to see that they can find a second big hit uh, out of, out of this strategy, but I don't know um, what your guys' thoughts are on, on this, what feels like a old school strategy and playbook in today's world. Um, I'll go. I, I think, well, they are so good at execution, right? You pointed out already Toon Blast and Toy Blast. So that's why they. I heard they raised their their round on like the back of a napkin. They just sort of said, oh, <laughs> we're the guys that did this and we're going to make another casual, you know, puzzle game. And they were like, yeah, take my money. And, you know, look how well they did. They were the fastest ever unicorn uh, in startup land for games. So an amazing success story there. You're quite right to say, though, can they make it happen again with, you know, the UA nightmare that we live in right now? They're still very active, though, at the moment. They're one of the companies that still do a ton of user acquisition across all platforms. So for them, it's either working well enough that they can still sustain it or they're confident in what they can learn. I do know that when they left Peak, that the the CMO from Peak is also part of the dream game story. And so with three sort of top 10 hits now, you've got to back them that they would know what they're doing. Or, you know, I guess they'll find out during soft launch if they game can or can't work uh, to me it looked like the pvp element was very much based on sort of coin master it felt a little bit like that to me maybe yep. not as deep but i think they maybe will have taken some cues from that but i do sort of agree with you in the sense that like what i don't see from them so far is anything to sort of make it go viral or kind of break user acquisition in any meaningful way so does that mean they're just going for quality and execution and they feel that that's the way to get there perhaps it is i mean if you've played Royal Match, I mean, it's the quality is absolutely unbelievable for that type of genre. I, I don't think you can um, underestimate how difficult it is to make something that feels that good the whole time. It's why 
their retention numbers, I'm sure, are super strong. They're both set in the same universe too. So are we going to get a royal match, a cinematic universe? And no, I think I'm, I'm leading too much into the Super <laughs> Mario topic. Um, um, I guess I'm just kind of rambling. I think we'll have to wait and see. I don't see anything inspired in terms of how they will break the UA angle, but maybe it's still enough to work if you have best-in-class numbers that you can still be profitable and players will eventually want new games anyway, even if you've played the same game after 10 years, you kind of want to change. They only have two titles right now. Now, that's a lot better than some, like you mentioned, Playrix and King, where I do know that I've heard rumors that some of those guys have had problems where if the same player has like five of the same game, they don't spend in any because they just cycle through the games. Whereas if there's just two, maybe it's less of a problem. We'll see. That's my take on it. I didn't realize the peak connection. I think that's that's interesting. Um, I I mean, you both probably understand the ins and outs of the the mobile app dynamics to me, but I still can't sort of shake the potential cannibalism uh, here. Um, And part of me wonders, and this might be a dumb idea, I'm just curious to get your quick take, if any part of this soft launch, whether it works or not, is there any chance that they could just take what works uh, that's new in this new game and then apply it to Royal Match, the original game, as an alternative strategy so that they can still get the benefits but not have to deal with the um, the cannibalistic potential tendencies that emerge? You, you could definitely do that. I, I would be surprised if they did that, though, because that's not the playbook that they did with Toon Blast and, and Toy Blast. They kind of just let them go their own separate ways. Um, you get some cannibalization, but at the same time, it's like if you like the same thing, you might still do it twice. I guess it's like if you like... Uh, a burger joint and then you go to another burger joint you might still spend in both wendy's and five guys right because you you're like even though they're slightly different and um, devin's not a fan of that he's like that would definitely not work but but everyone else you know I, if you like the core product and tammy's you know again hit the nail on the head that like you could be very deep in one game but you play this new game it's a fresh journey for you and you know you tend to be more excited invigorated in the game in the early patch too and I, usually in that type of genre as well, people don't really spend like an absolute truckload of money, right? It could be like a couple of hundred or something, even if you're considered like a super fan. And in the long run of things, that's really not that much for the amount of entertainment it's given you. So people will double dip. So I don't think any of these will be issues, but all the things that you mentioned, they could definitely take it across. I don't think they'll do that, but they could. And I don't think it will cannibalize too much, but it comes down to, can they really get the scale? The big thing is, is that the targeting is so much worse these days than it was before that you either have to have really good LTVs on your game or really cheap marketing. Um, I right now don't see yet what they have in either game that really makes it special. But if you're just super good execution, maybe it's enough. And the, the execution is there for sure. Like when, when you <laughs> see like the game, it's like they, from, from what I could tell, is like they made it even more polished and more feel good. If that's even possible. So they're clearly like iterating on their execution with every single game. One thing I wonder is, is like, so I saw an ad for what I guess was Royal Match like two days ago, right? On on the iPad. And now I'm sitting here thinking like, which one was it for? Like, because, you know, there's the, you know, the goofy king and like, oh, he does something dumb and then he loses stuff. But I'm like, at the end of the day, I don't know which one that was for. And I, I start to wonder, like, is there sometimes problems with differentiation when there's like, you know, there's certain, you've got that, that Burger King looking King they got going there with the, the ads. And, you know, if you're a player of the, the, the current, the, the original game and you see the, the ad for the new game, 
are you going to know it's a different game? Like other than recognizing the names different or maybe seeing like a mode that's slightly different, like the PVP stuff, are you just going to think, oh, is there an update to Royal Match? Should I go back and check for an update? Like, is that, do you guys think that's a problem to differentiate the games like that when it comes to advertising and user acquisition? I do, I do think that you bring a good point there, Devin, because I think this is the closest I've seen any of these like sequels, like quote unquote sequels for these types of casual games to be like, they're like identical. Um, and they're like the same universe. It's like, oh, the, 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 I think the, the, the story is like it's the brother of the king or some, something like that, right? But it's like they're identical, <laughs> effectively. Um, and a lot of times, the, one of the big reasons to go to the second game, like to go and release the second game, is to, you know, your CPIs, like your acquisition costs are rising because you are like saturating your own market and saturating the market. Um, so by, you know, refreshing a part of the game, including like some of how you're presenting the game, it kind of resets a little bit your your acquisition costs, even if it's like it starts at a little bit of a higher base, like it does give you a little bit of a reset button acquisition cost. So I do wonder what, um, you know, going so close in terms of uh, universe look and feel, just everything like name will do to their um, CPIs. Cause that, that is like a, a pretty, pretty bold take of like, Hey, let's just like do double down on this kingdom thing. On top of that as well, the thing is, is that because you don't have IDFA anymore, you can't do the targeting that you could do in the past and say, hey, I know that Devin has already played Royal Match, so I'm not going to show him an advert for this game. Or I do know he's played it, so I'm going to target a more specific advert towards it. That's literally the point of the IDFA changes, right? You can't do that. It has to go more towards brand sites. Actually, that's super interesting that you've mentioned that. And come to think about it, you're right. I was scrolling like Reddit on my phone the other day, and how would you know? I just assumed it was for Royal Match, but maybe it's not because actually Dream Games tend to soft launch their games in the UK quite frequently. It could actually have been the new game. And I'd be like, oh, well, I've already played that game. So there's no need for me to play this game, in which case that's quite a backfire. So um, I think you're onto something there. Well, at least the brand's recognizable enough, right? Where, where maybe you don't know which game it's for, but you're like, I know what, I know this is a Royal Match game, right? Uh, I mean, we'll we'll see how that, how that goes, but definitely going to be paying attention to that in the future to see uh, when I see those ads, like which which one is this for? Uh, but yeah, some some good points there. And speaking of uh, old games, moving on, uh, <laughs> we've got someone moving on from Sky Mavis. That was kind of a big deal when he when he joined. Yeah, I'll take this. I have to say, Devin, the transitions are so slick when you're on a podcast. Absolutely incredible. So we're talking about Philip La. Philip La was uh, he's a really famous guy in the industry. He used to be at Niantic. He was. Uh, director of product i believe on pokemon go which was kind of a big deal if you remember that a few years ago and then yeah a few years ago a big uh sort of news story was that he moved to sky mavis to take over axie infinity and this was just after the sort of boom period and that blew up and they were going to concentrate on making the game you know diversifying the ecosystem making it all about gameplay and less just about you know this kind of uh, play to earn mechanic well he announced on twitter recently that he says he's with bittersweet emotions that i'd like to show i'll be leaving sky mavis hq this week and and that's kind of interesting because if you look at what sky mavis have been up to they did like a big raise during the kind of last you know bull market and you know web three hype sphere uh 
they now have three games. Whereas there's the original Axie Classic. He was responsible for Axie Infinity Origins, which was kind of the rebooted version of that. And there is another game called Homeland, which is kind of like a farming game that's kind of like in beta and kind of out, but not really out. And they're kind of still iterating on that. Recently, there was also some news that now, thanks to their Ronin network, there's more people going to be building on the Sky Mavis ecosystem unless they're on their games. And I'm wondering if this perhaps could be something to do with here. Because what I would say is that it kind of feels like for the Axie IP especially, it doesn't really feel like mission accomplished to me in the sense that like it hasn't really reclaimed its former glory. There isn't yet this kind of like really big new game that takes what was learned in the original one and takes it to another level. So is that something that he's happy with or not i don't know i mean at the same time he's a very experienced guy super talented he could well have just gone on and wants to do his own startup or he doesn't like you know perhaps sky mavis has become bureaucratic i don't know i don't want to be too speculative especially as someone who i have a ton of respect for in a professional capacity but i think that is quite big news to me it does signal maybe either a strategic change there or something that's going to happen so i'm curious as to what the panel thinks about this and what you think could be next for philip I don't really want to speculate. I, I don't think we really know about him specifically, but it is interesting that it comes a week after um, Sky Mavis announces the new games that are being built on on Ronin. Uh, we discussed that last week, so if you didn't listen to that convo, check that out. We also, um, Nico interviewed Kathleen Osgood, who runs BD, um, and she had some interesting things to say about how Sky Mavis is thinking about all of this. And I think they still do care about the Axie IP. And I think they probably would agree with you, Anil, that there's more that they want to do <laughs> before they consider it mission accomplished. Um, I'm not really sure how Philip plays into that long-term strategy or not, or if he felt handicapped or there was, you know, he wanted to do his own thing. I don't think we we know, but... Yeah, the kind of the the chain of events is interesting, and it and it does signal at least a new chapter for Sky Mavis, um, in in some way, which is good to see, I think. Um, and I'm yeah, curious to see where not just Philip goes, but where, where this whole team takes the company next. How about you, Devin, as someone who's very you know into the Web three ecosystem and sphere? What yeah. do you make of this? <clears throat> I you know. I don't, I don't want to like be speculative, but I kind of do at the same time. I, I think um, I, be, because he's like not exiting to another game position to me, this doesn't look like the kind of thing that was voluntary on mm. Philip's part, but I don't know. Like I don't, I've spoken to Philip, but I don't know him personally well enough to say like he would or wouldn't do this. Right. But going from Niantic to this position was a big position. And he was like a, a public figurehead, uh, to some extent, right? Like he was, he was very vocal as soon as he went over there. And like, that was a big deal. Like he was trying to help change the image of Axie. And I think that was like a, a positive thing, right? Like, Oh, let's shift away from the, the play to earn. Let's shift towards these things. And like, he was important as sort of like, uh, you know, press relations in some ways. Right. And I, I don't know if that died down. Cause I wasn't completely like following everything he was doing, but maybe it just was like diverging, but they also like to, to have this happen at the same time that they're, that they're pushing things that aren't heavy Axie does make me think that maybe they're thinking, Hey, maybe this Axie IP, we still want to do it, but we can't bet everything on it. Right. Like one of those like four or five games that's coming is going to have like Axie IP, like the rest don't. And that, that says to me, like they, they know that they can't bet everything on it. And maybe they were just like, you know what, maybe Philip, sorry, we just don't have like a place for you here. I, they obviously didn't announce anyone to replace him yet either. Right. Uh, so I, I am kind of curious where that sort of position ends up. There are other public, well-known figures, you know, around around the game, like Jiho and stuff like that. So it's not like that completely goes away. But I do wonder, like, do they start to shift their their public 
sort of image. I mean, they have like a million things around Axie, but at the same time, that isn't exactly growing Sky Mavis as a company like the way they would like to, right? It's, it's more contracting things and Ronin itself, you know, is was kind of languishing without uh, new games coming to it. Like, you know, the, the Defenders of Lunation land wasn't going to save Ronin on its own as, as much as it's fun to have those builders uh, games. So it's, I, ho- I hope for good things from Phil, though. Like, he always made a really good impression and I think is a smart guy. So I hope it's something that leads to, like, someone snapping him up. And, and I, I mean, I doubt he goes back to Niantic, but uh, you never know. Like, good, always good possibilities for smart people. And I see a lot of people constantly transitioning in the Web3 space, like, between companies. Uh, you know, like, you just you just never know. So hopefully it'll be a good thing in the end for everyone. Speaking of uh, of people moving on and... and things transitioning uh we've got uh an interesting acquisition of scopely so uh yes this time we of can, them. yeah we can dive into the the scopely acquisition and i'll set a little bit of the the overview and what the deal entails who who is acquiring scopely and then we can jump into a discussion around uh you know this pros and cons of this uh deal but just Quick overview, uh, Savvy Games Group acquired Scopely or announced um, last week that they will be acquiring Scopely for uh, the whooping amount of $4.9 billion with a B. Um, so that's pretty steep price tag. Uh, who is Savvy Games? Just as context, it's effectively it's a holding company. We've seen a lot of these uh, prop up in the, the last few years. They're owned by the... Saudi Arabia government effectively. It's called the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund, uh, where they have kind of like this this broader goal of become the next hub for the video game industry, diversify Saudi's Arabia economy away from oil. Uh, they've already made some significant investments in the gaming space. Uh, the the more notorious ones have been on the esports front, the they acquired ESL um, out of uh, MTG, another holding company, Swedish one. Uh, and uh, they've also invested in uh, Nintendo or, and Embracer. They're uh, shareholders of Nintendo and Embracer, both at about 8%. Um, some notes on the specific deal. So the valuation is actually really good for Scopely. It's somewhere in between their last two valuations. Uh, one in 2020, when they raised their last fund, uh, their valuation was at 3.3 billion. Uh, and then they did another valuation in 2021 at, uh, came out around 5.4. So 4.9, it's uh, an incredible, like really good solid valuation for them based on, on where they've been. Uh, generally speaking, I think that it's, um, a positive outcome for, for Scopely just from like a purely like financial perspective. So they've had, uh, I think it's like somewhere uh, north of eight rounds of funding. So, you know, they've raised, you know, close to a billion dollars in uh, VC money. Uh, it's a 12 year old company. You know, the exit strategy here are like very like narrow is, you know, IPO, and I think that a lot of us could have bet that they were positioning themselves for an IPO uh, this year. Based on where the market's at, uh, I think it's a, it's a wise thing to not IPO. 
So at that point, the the only other acquisition, um, sorry, exit strategy is acquisition. And there's not a lot of buyers at this size. So I think like it really narrows down their their options and and what they could really, uh, you know, get out of a like get a good deal, big enough um, strategic investor. So all in, I think it's excellent outcome for employees, uh, investors, the execs uh, at Scopely. Uh, but I do think that it's going to come in with with some <laughs> challenges, which is uh, part of part of what I want to jump into. Um, I don't think it honestly answers the the objective, or like really, you know, using a word I, I don't <laughs> love, but like doesn't have synergy with like the the whole strategy of setting like a like building operations talent uh like geographically in in the region so you know yes they're gonna have like a, a huge uh company but um i don't think it quite works out <laughs> uh for exactly like for for their goals uh and the other piece is uh scopely has also run into uh you know the headwinds of the post idfa doomsday happenings of of the mobile landscape so they had seen pretty rapid decline year over year from like 2020 um they've had kind of this second wind after or whatever number of wind uh, after the acquisition of stumble guys where they you know went back and like got you know huge uh growth this last year but um you know they they do have to you know transition their strategy as well so uh, it's not a, a slam dunk in terms of like a, a business that it's growing. It's more like a business that's in this period where it needs to figure out how to transition to the new world that we live in, in terms of, of mobile games. Do they have to go into, uh, you know, I've heard some people suggest, you know, they have to go into like PC and console. Um, some people suggesting they have to like double down on like their IP strategy. So there's, there's a lot of options there for Scobly, but uh, all in, I think it's financial slam dunk um, potentially for for the investors. Uh, but it's it's going to be not a slam dunk for uh, savvy games. So uh, I, I was wondering what your guys's take is in terms of you know what is next for Scobly under this this new ownership. Um, are they going to be able to grow their business? Uh, you know, given that they're going to need investment and Savvy already is paying a pretty uh, high price tag. And then can, you know, Savvy Games can actually take advantage of this acquisition. Well, I think you're you're right that this is probably like roughly a best case outcome financially for Scopely, just given the, the limited options of IPOing would be tough. And just <laughs> there aren't many buyers when you're when you're this large and how they how they're exiting, I think it is lower than their last valuation, but as you said, larger than last time they raised money. So all investors should be made made whole and feel um, pretty good uh, about the outcome given the circumstances. As for what's next, I, I almost think it's important to also just provide more context for like savvy and just like how much money they have at their disposal and what they could continue to throw at things. And so um, they just big picture with gaming they've dedicated 38 billion dollars to investing in the games industry 
And I think they said that it was 13 billion. Um, I think I'm remembering that right. Yeah, 13 billion set aside to acquire a leading games publisher. And so obviously, here here they are finally doing that, or at least part of that. Um, you know, we've, we've kind of said before that Savvy is like a sleeping giant in the industry. We just have no idea what they're going to look like <laughs> when they wake <laughs> up. And they're starting to to wake up a bit, you know, through through these various, not just investments, but acquisitions too. And so even to put into context, Scopely is their largest investment to date at $4.9 billion, but they've made six other $1 billion plus investments. So Nintendo, Activision, EA, Nexon, Take-Two, ESL. ESL being the, the other one there that is fully fully acquired. Um, but even so, out of the $13 billion that they have dedicated to like uh, publisher acquisitions, this is still less than half of, of, of their, their budget, basically, which is just interesting to put into to context because um, I do think that Savvy will have pretty high ambitions with Scopely once it is more fully integrated. Um, and I do think that a lot of that ambition is going to stem beyond mobile. It will be figuring out how they can build the console PC leg here. And I think that is probably high risk, high reward. We don't have any information about what that will look like, how they'll like acquire talent or build new studios whether they're just going to use more of their budget to make more acquisitions and then make Scopely the vessel to kind of oversee the publishing operations. That's sort of like, I kind of think that might be a likely outcome, just kind of given how they're throwing out the console PC ambitions here too. Um, but again, we don't really know what that's going to look like, but there's, I have a feeling that they're just going to continue to invest and put more money um, in in that direction. So it'll be really interesting to see um, see where where that that goes. Um, the other big like risk here for me is just I think that Savvy is going to have to figure out how to maintain leadership team at least in large part. A lot of times when big acquisitions happen, leadership finds a way to get out pretty soon after, and with the extra quirks. Of this one, they're, they're they're running autonomously still, you know, theoretically, so that should help. But even so, you know, it, it's a change of lifestyle to kind of run independently in California to then being owned by Saudi Arabia, and the potential the potential changes that that happened there. Like, do you need to be in Saudi Arabia? Like, how do you have to cater to this whole other region in a way you didn't have to think about before? That could put some pressures that you know maybe the leadership team who just became really rich with this exit. Um, they don't want to think about. So I'm I'm curious to to see where 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 that goes. But yeah, those are my my high level thoughts. Yeah, and I think you you touched on a on a couple of like really uh, interesting pieces. One is like the the leadership uh, retaining the the leadership team. They are structured to you know as you said remain autonomous in in their positions. At the same time, they. A lot of them have been there for like nine plus years. So when you when you start looking at like nine plus years, big payday, uh, new overlords, uh, there's there's just like a lot of factors there that end up like you know you start seeing attrition from you know at all levels, but also at the at the leadership level of of the company. Um, but yeah, the, the other interesting piece that you touched on is like just the, the big, uh, 
fund that that savvy games has right it's like we don't see that like deep deep pockets i think like they're they're one of the players right now in the space that's tr- or trying to get in the space with such deep pockets um so we don't we don't know where where they're gonna leverage that money and where they're gonna go next um so i think that that is you know even even some of the problems that might come with the acquisition not being quite the perfect answer they have money to throw at the problem. <laughs> and as a panel, do we really think that that price is is good for Scopely? That I'm kind of curious that given Zynga went for so much more last year, I appreciate totally different market and dynamics, but I remember we touched upon Scopely quite a few times in the, the Metacast. And yeah, it was always a question. It's like, how do they get an exit? Because getting a billion in funding you know, if you were a VC, would you be happy with the return you made? And I suppose it's like a three and a half X, four X multiple, but I, I I actually feel it's a pretty good deal for Savvy, in my opinion, given what you've said, that they don't really have a vehicle to kind of launch everything on. You're going to have like a world-class analytics stack, really good, you know, understanding someone who's used to doing this kind of stuff. Price-wise, I think they got a good deal compared to the Zinger price. I don't really know enough about this to really make an opinion, but I, I would like to pose that question to the panel. It's interesting. I guess my take is that, um, uh, and, I, and I guess the caveat is we don't really know the financials to like really be able to ground comparisons and real numbers. So it is a bit speculative, but if the Zynga acquisition were to get done today, it probably would be done at half the price. Um, which puts it much more in line with with this deal size. I think um, Zynga, if anything, was super fortunate in what they were able to to get away with there and take two. I mean, their stock price is still down like 40% or something, 30 40% since that deal was made, largely because of, of Zynga kind of being an anchor this year for them. So yeah, I don't think it's the best return for VCs, but I think when you look at the the cards that you've been dealt and you look at, you know, the playing field, it probably was the best best way to play the hand is my my assumption. Now, maybe they could have waited it out a couple of years and reassess an IPO environment. And, you know, maybe maybe there could have been alternatives that would have been OK. But um, in terms of thinking about the now and if that opportunity for a massive, you know, payday comes your way, I think they had to take it seriously. And that's what they decided to to run with. Do you guys think there's any opportunities then for some synergies between Scopely and some of the other companies that Savvy's acquired? Like that that this could benefit Scopely, for example, um, outside of just the money, like in terms of like, hey, maybe you can help solve, you know, some of the problems we've been running into, stuff like that, just uh, like by being under one umbrella? My, my hot take is that uh, Scopely is coming in as the experts from from the group. So they're, they're effectively, if anything, coming in to solve and answer, like help them answer questions, solve problems that they just don't have experience with. Yeah. And most of the other investments so far, it's partial ownership. And there, there actually hasn't been that much yet that's fully owned by Savvy Games Group. I mean, I guess the esports side of thing is probably like the biggest that we've seen so far, but like between like ESL and Scopely, there's <laughs> I don't think you can really justify any synergies there. I think it's probably it is more forward thinking of all right, we're we're getting our giant wedge a foot in the door, and then we'll see what we can build on with this team. Well, cool. Well, hopefully it works out for everyone at Scopely there. At least uh, 
if they got their exit, <laughs> they could move on to other things. But uh, moving further east, had some interesting stuff going on with Sony, trying to trying to keep things interesting in the cloud. Yeah, plus a few other things. So very interesting stuff from Sony. So they have um, just announced that there's 22 uh, job openings for, for cloud gaming, including specifically someone who will be the director of product management for cloud gaming, which is defining like the strategic vision and how that's all going to come together. So it looks like they're really about to make a, another big kind of push into cloud gaming. And if this sounds somewhat familiar, <laughs> it's because it is. <laughs> because if you sort of turn back time, um, Sony at one point bought a company called uh, Gaikai with David Perry, who is their CEO, and they bought them for a lot of money. It was 380 million in 2012. So they've tried to do the whole kind of cloud gaming spiel before. They've had sort of some numbers and people using it on their own platforms. And I find this pretty interesting that they would try to do it right now, given that it has kind of been discussed to death on this podcast. But, um, you know, the Google Stadia and the lack of, you know, it being you know, really missing the barrier on, on every single angle that they feel that this is the sort of right time to come in and try that. So I'm very interested to see what they do that. Of course, I guess the elephant in the room here is that Microsoft is really leaning into it hard with, you know, Games Pass and really starting to, to do very effective things there. They've got the biggest fanboy and, and Aaron Bush with that product too, who wants it to merge with Netflix <laughs> <laughs> and then become this all-encompassing super thing. That's yeah, a great product, I would say, in terms of what it is. So, um, and, you know, how serious are they with that? There's also news that like some of the patents that they filed have Mark Cherney himself, who's the guy who led PS4 and PS5 development from the ground up after the kind of debacle that was PS3. So it seems to suggest that it's it's a big part of what they're going to do for the future. Now, there's a few other things that I want to add to this later, but I'll kind of take that as kind of part two and three. So I guess just sort of starting off with sort of the 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 reforay into cloud gaming, what do you think that benefits Sony? Is it a good move for them to make? Yeah, um, I, I think that it's it's different from Microsoft, right? Microsoft's strategy is like you can play anything anywhere um, on through whatever means, and the cloud is just one way to facilitate that. I think with Sony, it still is much more the hub and spokes strategy where the PlayStation console is always going to be at the core of the experience. And then all the things that they do around it, whether it's VR or, or this, um, I think that it's it's more for that existing audience and more providing them more ways to play and boost engagement and you know more more in that zone. I think maybe like what's more interesting to me here than even just like the quote unquote like cloud strategy as like or like the delivery mechanism strategy is more like the angle that Sony might be rethinking their handheld strategy. Um and from what I've seen um the rumored cost of like the new handheld floating around is about $200, which is actually pretty reasonable. Um, and if the specs are good and it's sleek, I think it could have a much higher attach rate than something like the PSVR, which is obviously tethered, very expensive, and VR games come at an additional cost. But if the handheld enables players to be more flexible in playing their PlayStation games that they already have or that they already subscribed to through the subscription services. Um, I think that, you know, just like the Switch, now the Steam Deck, I think that that ability could be really appreciated by that player base. And it wouldn't surprise me that in the long run, we actually see all of the the big three console companies um, (laughs) have some type of solo handheld strategy just as a, a means of 
you know, expanding their their player base and boosting engagement in some way. With Nintendo, it's going to be built into the console. With with Xbox, it's going to be the play anywhere strategy. You don't need the console. And then with Sony, I think it'll be, you know, you'll have the console, but you can play anywhere is more the direction that I I seeing that strategy go. But I think that there is a big opportunity to kind of revive the handheld market in some way, whether it's standalone device or more like accessories for smartphones. Um, and I'm excited to see where that goes. Well, you're such a tease because that was going to be part two of what I was going to mention, which is that they have this idea of something called the Q Lite, which is their new handheld. And, you know, that's not new ground for Sony. They started with the PSP. If you remember the, uh, was it the UMD drive that they had? And then they had the PS Vita as well. Very nice pieces of equipment. They never really kind of caught fire in the same way that Nintendo managed to achieve with their handhelds. So this is their new one. And yes, what's interesting is that that is a very reasonable price, I would say. That's actually a lot cheaper than the PS Vita, which seems to suggest that it's not going to be a dedicated piece of hardware that can run a PS5 game on the go, which they could have done, right? Because I, th- I know you're another Steam Deck bro, I believe. I know that I'm one of those. And I have to say, being able to play Resident Evil 4 Remake whilst being on the toilet makes that experience a lot more <laughs> terrifying than it already is, in a good way. So it's kind of a shame that we won't be able to get that kind of experience. Although maybe you can, because if you're in your flat or your apartment, your house, whatever, you can stream it and you can play it that way. So that's pretty interesting. And the, how do these kind of things tie in together? Um, so what do we make of that as a panel in terms of like how this, as you mentioned, it, it feels to me always that Sony have lots of different fingers in lots of different pies. You mentioned VR there as well. Remember that they bought Savage Game Studios not so long ago to get into mobile too. Um, there's a lot that are going on there in that in that Sony household. I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. Is there more to that part too then? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I didn't mean to step on your toes there, uh, <laughs> Adele. But I guess I mean my I mean my my quick thought is that like I think that if they do this, it's going to have a much higher attach rate than the PSVR, and we won't really view it necessarily as like a separate business line, like the Vita was in the past. But um, if it helps um, PlayStation players play more often, it boosts engagement, so they don't have to be you know stuck to their TV. I think that's a win, and that makes a lot of sense for a long term direction of of a company like this. I mean, if this um, you know, if this is true and it launches, like I'll I'll buy it for two hundred dollars. It's not. It's you know less expensive than a Steam Deck or even other more dedicated um, hardware. Um, and as long as the sh- the cloud streaming works <laughs> pretty well, um, I think it could be a pretty compelling product and a pretty great experience. Yeah, I also wonder if maybe some of their mobile games will work on it in a kind of slightly up-res version. I mean, Savage was working on the shooter game themselves. That would seem like a good fit for some kind of Steam Deck-type handheld that was not as powerful as a PS5, but may have some sort of native ability that isn't quite comparable. Just sort of thinking and spitballing around. Um, How about the rest of the panel? What do you make of this news? I think it's, it's, to me, it's like it's an interesting positioning for Sony in general, just because it, all, all things considered, as you were both were saying, like it makes sense. Um, on the other hand, I do think that they're, they don't have as like broad of a catalog as, you know, a switch, uh, you know, Microsoft, it's like play, they have like whole other strategy as Aaron was saying and very deep catalog. And like, you know, they're chasing that as well, having like a deeper catalog and uh, Steam has, you know, can't even 
talk about like the, the Steam catalog. So where where I'm kind of my where my head gravitates from, you know, this whole strategy is like, how are they going to leverage some of like the, the the cloud gaming push to also expand potentially their catalog, um, and part of that like you know leverage that catalog as part of like the handheld strategy. So yeah, where, where my brain goes in terms of, you know, potential challenges is, is more of that, you know, the, the, they might have the hardware, the price point, do they have the games? Yeah. It's supposed to like use the home station as the, as the base, right? So is that something people really want? Cause like, haven't they had some of that stuff with like the PSP and the Vita and stuff in the past? And like, we've had stuff like being able to stream Steam from your PC to your phone to this, to the actual like, uh, Steam link. So this whole like idea of tethered, like from your home base station, do you guys even think that's something that can catch on? Because it's not new. And I, I, I don't get the impression that that's the, the way people actually really want to do gaming on the go. Yeah, this is kind of where I find the whole thing quite interesting because I, I don't buy it either. I sort of see different ways that you could win in this market and they seem to be doing none of those things. <laughs> so it's like you either go for this kind of cheap but underpowered handheld that's really popular amongst younger demographics, which is the Nintendo route proven. You go for this sort of, you know, you can play high quality stuff on the move that you couldn't do normally and it seamlessly fits in when you get back to your your PC, which is kind of Steam Deck, Microsoft play anything, anytime, anywhere. That kind of makes sense. This is like you can sort of play it, but only in this very specific instance. And would you really want to do that? I don't know. The thing that's always puzzled me about Sony and their handheld strategy in general, and even the cloud gaming, is that I associate Sony with this kind of premium quality, super high, you know, almost luxury type of gaming that, that you can play. So when you play on either handheld or cloud gaming, the one thing you're not getting is that like Google Stadia is like you can play this kind of down rest version with high latency version of this game that you probably already own in your own household that you could play otherwise. Or on PSP or PS Vita, it was like, yeah, you can play this version of Uncharted of God of War that's pretty cool, but isn't as good as the version that you would play on your home console that you must inevitably own because you know what Sony and gaming is about. So I am always confused around this. But what I will say is it does seem kind of cohesive that all these things tie in together, like the the mobile studio purchase, the getting the, the kind of cloud platform. Um, I've also put a tidbit here in our notes that they bought Jade Raymond Studio recently and they were already working on the Stadio game before they moved to Sony. Oh, all of a sudden, that makes a lot more sense. I remember that was something that came up in a previous Metacast as to what they would be doing for Sony. So there does seem to be some co- cohesive vision here. I would say on the surface, I personally don't think it will be too great, but let's see what the execution is. Maybe I, I'm wrong. And, you know, when Sony knocks it out of the park, it's always great to see. Well, speaking of pushing new tech forward, some cool stuff on AI, if you want to take that away, Aaron. Yeah. Uh, so this will be a, a fun way to end today's um, episode, I think. So this past week, a new research paper from Cornell, I think. Um, started making the rounds. It was titled Generative Agents Interactive Psy Molecra of Human Behavior. And what the researchers did was create a Sims-like sandbox environment populated with generated agents that run based on some LLM, a learning language model. Uh, They simulate 
quote unquote normal human behavior. So these agents, they wake up, they make breakfast, they go to work where they have different jobs. But what the LLM enables is for these agents to observe each other, to strike up conversations, to form opinions. And the software enables them over time to synthesize memories into higher level reflections, sort of like, you know, humans do, um, which they then are influenced by in, in their behavior. And what's most interesting, though, about all of this, and why the paper is making waves, is because this simulation is seeing interesting emergent behaviors. So, for instance, the example that they give in the abstract is that when one agent is prompted to throw a Valentine's Day party, it creates ripple effects um, in in the simulation, the agents begin to autonom- autonomously spread invitations, meet new agents, ask them out as dates to the party, and then they all coordinate somehow to show up at the right time. Uh, and it's sort of a mundane example, but one prompt causing an entire chain of events that co- that compounds on itself in really realistic ways, I think is super fascinating. And the implications for this go far beyond games. But at this point, I don't see how we're not going to see long-term revolutionary changes driven by AI NPCs and the impact that they have on making video game worlds more realistic and, and lively and unpredictable for, for, better, for better or worse. And our, our fellow host, Nico, two, three weeks ago, he published an interview with... Um, Kyan Gibbs, who, who's um, the co-founder of InWorld AI, and I highly recommend checking that out. But I do think that the part that still is under-discussed is not just that NPCs will have more complex personalities or that they'll remember things and therefore make player interactions more meaningful. It's the emergent properties between, between players, but also between themselves that can evolve these characters and game worlds in ways that simply cannot be planned <laughs> by by anyone. Um, and that's a really powerful notion that I think we're just starting to scratch the surface of, and we're going to have to have a lot of difficult, interesting, complex conversations over time to figure out what to do with this and what not to do with, with this. So I am curious, um, first of all, what you make of all of this. What do you make of the paper? And how, like, do you think that you know AI NPCs for games in the long run will be truly transformative in some way. How big of a deal really is this? I do wonder like you know so as game designers, right? Like you're trying to shape an experience, like an interactive one. You're setting parameters, you're building a little bit of a design sandbox and you're saying like okay, like you could do these things, but we're going to try and push your behavior in certain directions. We're going to try and get you to do certain things to have this experience, right? Like you know, it's multifaceted, but we like, you know, as designers, you kind of want to shape that to an extent, right? Like you have to give up some element of authorship because it's not a movie or a book or whatever. But when you start saying the NPCs can just emerge and do whatever, it starts to get like a little unpredictable. And like, that's that's fun, but I, I can't see that applying to like every game, right? You can't just have every game where it's like, stuff will happen, we don't know. Like, there's NPCs, we, we gave them stuff to do. You'll run into them. Like, I, I feel like you even started to kind of see dipping in this direction with that last Watchdog watchdogs game where they tried to like make everyone matter kind of where you could play as anyone they kind of had their own routines and things that they did kind of similar to this sort of thing way less complicated but it was also like that ended up like sucking up so much of the project 
that like they they had trouble like making a game on top of that sometimes because like they were just building all that instead and it's like this is really cool but can you plop it into a game is is the big question i think well but now surely they can i I think it will be transformative i think it only works in certain types of games it will work in open world games but imagine a grand theft auto a cyberpunk a watchdogs as you say where all of a sudden these side missions that you have can really be deep and fleshed out and that italian mafia boss now the ai can make it have full drama and his brother valentino that if you double crossed him earlier in the game now leads an entirely new different decision line and the gameplay and a lot of these open world games isn't particularly revolutionary. It's just fetch quest really with a little bit of combat and gunplay and driving yet super, you know, Grand Theft Auto is the most successful game of all time, GTA V. So I think it will still take time to really get it working right. But I actually think that it it will be huge for this type of game. Um, yeah, you should be able to really make, you know, really compelling type of games that, you have infinite replay value that every time you start, the character personalities are slightly different each time and it really makes your own world. I mean, maybe it leads to, to different problems, which is that if you're a game maker and the game is kind of infinite in this regard, you know, then does the player need to buy any more games? Uh, you know, can't they just play your one true game forever? Subscription a, model. Well, maybe, maybe you need that in order to keep the service going because that those AI costs are not cheap to keep generating that stuff. But I think it really would work for that because... Yeah, when it comes to like game production and design to make games like that, it's a huge challenge to be able to generate all of that content and to make it kind of cohesive. And you would be surprised how kind of good enough still makes the immersion of the game incredible. So I think with enough kind of um, iteration on it and trying this stuff over and over, I, I think you could definitely make great games that fully utilize this technology. And that is the dream, right? If you could play an MMO where every single thing is fully interactive and maybe the AI can even make you realistic buildings of inside interiors and things like this This is like another challenge, right? Where it's really difficult to get this going. Um, Yeah. I don't see how you couldn't knowing the sort of speed that GTA has come out. I would say sort of GTA seven or eight would be my prediction for using this tech and being world-class at it. Um, But I bet it'd be a good game for, for utilizing it. Yeah. And I think you, you touched on a, on a point from like the game dev side that it's like, it's a constant challenge. The amount of content that it requires to make like a lot of these games, like really immersive experiences and just games in general, like the amount of content that you require from like, from, uh, you know, the NPC design, world design, art, just like start touching on like all the different pieces of content. Like that's where you, you know, you, it gets very complex very quickly to build like certain types of games, uh, but just games in general. And, you know, a lot of, I think that a lot of what AI and like papers like this are bringing into a conversation is um, how can we, how can we use it as a tool and how can we use it as like, you know, help us shape games in a, in a new, interesting way. I think like that is going to be a, uh, advantage for teams that figure that out uh sooner rather than later i think like there is a competitive advantage on figuring out how to leverage ai versus like it's not about shying away from ai but it's like how to and not about like replacing certain roles but it's like how how can you know ai prop you up in a way where you know you can create a richer experience richer world um, and this definitely hits that that note of like a richer experience in richer world just through 
you know, you you can probably or potentially like set the the parameters of like how far the the NPCs can go in terms of you know defining their own emergent behaviors. Um, enough, it, like, and once you figure that out, then then you can create like this this world that you can still mold as a as a game designer. But it also you don't have to like define every single detail that is like so time consuming. Yeah, I think um, when I think about what's going on now, I I I think back to what I've heard about Ultima Online when it launched and how at that time it was a pretty important moment for the industry in terms of for really the first time um, the game couldn't control players <laughs> in a, in a sense in terms of like knowing what they would do and them trying to break the game and them the players turning the world into something that um, was more in partnership with the game developer instead of just um, everything fully determined by the game developer. And this feels like the next wave of that where the cat's out of the bag and um, we're going <laughs> to, uh, maybe not everywhere, but in a lot of places have these AI NPCs that can make decisions that can't be fully controlled and and as we we see elsewhere with um you know sydney and bing and you know other places like you can try to set parameters but people are still going to try to find ways to to break them or to push the limits or you know even if you make these npcs have access to each other they can create emergent properties that you don't expect and so i i think it's going to be really interesting to see how moderation works in this way? Like, what do you allow to happen? Where do you don't? But what can you even control in, in some instances down the line? Um, I know we're, we're kind of running a bit over, but the, the last time I want to, the last thing I want to hit on here before we um, wrap up is that, you know, on the, alongside these innovations that we're seeing that are super interesting, that are brand new, that, you know, take us some time to like really wrap our heads around the implications at the same time, there are also criticisms that are rising up too. Um, we see that there are um, fears around AIs replacing jobs in the games industry and in other industries. Uh, there are, are uncertainties around copyright issues. We've even started seeing some like nations like Italy like shut down ChatGPT, um, and you know it's becoming more of like a a, a political. Um, lens um, these days. Um, then, of course, you know, there's the safety concerns around, you know, runaway AIs <laughs> and all and all of that side of thing too. But there's a lot of fear and uncertainty around everything that's going on here. So maybe before we wrap up, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on should anything be done about slowing down, um, assessing, managing these concerns in the games industry, or should Everyone just move full speed ahead, or does the conversation not even matter because someone's going to go full speed ahead anyways? I'm on your your last thought. To be honest, I I do I I wish that the world did kind of sit back and kind of really understand this because there is a lot of danger. The danger being that if you create like a new worldwide financial crisis because 300 million people don't have a job anymore that's like some serious stuff that will take a long time to solve but unfortunately with the way that the world is it's kind of doggy dog and the people that 
will do it, are going to do it, and they're going to get ahead. And therefore, we've already unwittingly started this arms race. So unfortunately, I think it doesn't matter and, and you've got to embrace it. I think we've seen things like this already on, for sure, on a much smaller scale. But it's like, you know, when someone starts giving their products away for free and you monetize later, what, are you insane? You know, we're used to having... $40 spent in, in game. What are you talking about? You're giving your products away for free and, and things like this. It's just a way more extreme version of that. Um, and I think you have to get on board because if you don't, you're going to get left behind. And that is unfortunate for a lot of things. Like I'm surely, I know a lot of people in my own team have expressed concerns. Like, am I going to get replaced by AI? Um, and, you know, what I say to them is I, I know, but I think it's extremely important that you start doing some research and learning how you can use it to maybe harness it going forward. Because, you know, if not with us, if that's the way that the world is going, you've got to add to your own skill set to understand how to use it. Cool. Well, some great topics, great conversation today. I want to thank all of you, of course, for those great topics, a great conversation. And uh, of course, if you found any of these topics interesting, make sure to stop by the Discord, start some conversation there as well. But uh, otherwise, we will see you guys next week for more great topics and more great conversations. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novic Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.